Philosophy of Psychoanalysis. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available, but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. Lecture 21, Personality in Research. So today's lecture is a broad one. I'm covering far too much as usual, but I'm hoping that some of it is of interest to you. So yeah, here we go. Okay. And the themes of today's lecture, basically qualitative and quantitative research. The question I'm asking, and it's the sort of question I love to ask as a, an exam question, do numbers equal science? If you've got numbers in your project, does that make your project scientific? Discuss. Okay, that's a real Doris question, right? I'm also looking at the issue of subjectivity and objectivity, only very lightly. And I want to look at context in a number of ways. One is the context in which we act, and the other is the context in which we perceive the other. Because whenever you meet someone, you're perceiving them in the context of your personality. And your personality actually brings quite a lot to that situation in ways that you will progressively realise as the course goes on. The broader themes today are, I want to get you to loosen up a little bit as psychologists, to think of data as coming from a variety of potential sources, even things that don't seem like real data. Um, I also want you to think about the conceptual framework that you bring to your observations, both as a, an ordinary person observer, but also as a psychologist. And what I want to sort of alert you to is that, for me, the hallmark of science is when you let the data disrupt the framework that you've brought to that data. And that's the heart of science for me. When I let the data disrupt my preconceptions, I go in thinking I know what it's all about, but I let the data sort of disturb me, if you like, make me see things afresh in different ways, in new ways. If I am so sealed off that the data can't get through to me, it's not science any longer, it's prejudice. Okay, So it's very important. In other words, it's not the presence or absence of numbers that makes something science. It's not whether you do qualitative or quantitative that makes something science. It's like if you leave yourself open to disconfirmation in some way, that is the heart of science. Okay, And I, I really think that's, that's one of my ways of trying to live. Okay, first task of today, just very briefly, could you please just jot down some traits that describe a friend? This will be useful later on, perhaps. So think of a friend and think of the first few traits that come to mind about that friend. Okay? Now do the same with yourself. Think of the first few traits about you that come to mind. Okay? Next task. Think of the most quirky thing about that friend of yours. Like the quirkiest thing, the thing that really sets them apart in some way. Okay, and then do the same for yourself. Something that wouldn't describe anybody else, but that is really true of you. Okay, we'll come back to that, so just hold that in mind, okay? Could you just tally up first, though, how many things, when you were writing down traits that described a friend, how many did five or less? Yep. How many did exactly five? Who did four? Cool. Who did more than five? 
far out. We've got some highly verbal people here. That's good to see. Okay, that's good. We'll come back to that. Thank you so much. Okay, here's another task. Okay, when you think about speaking in public, what's it most like for you? Okay, this is a kind of, this is called an equivalence test. What's speaking in public like for you? And I've got some examples that I generated. Is it a breeze, like a hot bar? Is it like a dangerous downhill ski run? You know, you're at the top of the peak, you know you really aren't quite as good a skier, but you point your skis downhill and go, ah! Anyway, is that what public speaking is like? Is it like going to the dentist, oh God, I've got to go? Is it kind of that thrill, excitement, terror of the first date? Or is it something like plunging into a pool? Yeah, it's a bit of work, but you know it's well within your capacity. Okay, these psychological equivalences are actually a very good way of discovering what something means to a person. Because what speaking in public means to you is likely to be very different from what it means to somebody else. And it's actually a great way to find the sort of associative space that's around a task if you ask the person, what would it be like for you? And one of the most famous psychologists, Cattell, thinks that actually that's a very good way to explore the meaning of a, a, a piece of behavior for a person. Okay, what we're actually sort of talking about today is a, is a contrast between two trends within psychological research, the ideographic and the nomothetic. The ideographic is where you map what is a signature about a person, unique descriptors of a person. For instance, William James was said to have a horror of exact thought. Okay, that doesn't mean he was a sloppy thinker, but he just had a horror of somebody that had to be so tidy and exact and precise about their thinking. That's a fairly unique descriptor. You might also think about contexts in which a person might excel or contexts that they would avoid at all costs, or contexts in which they're incredibly uncomfortable. So you'll notice that part of personality entails the sorts of situations that you reliably put yourself in, or the situations that you reliably avoid, which is what I was trying to get at last week when I asked you if you would go bungee jumping or fire walking. Okay? Now, one of the things that one of my colleagues researches is violent video games. And I was talking to him this morning about that, and he said it's quite a dangerous area to research because he gets a lot of threats from gamers who are kind of, you know, annoyed that he's saying that um, playing video games makes you really violent. And some of those threats are really quite hostile threats. And I was going, don't they sort of see the paradox of that? Like, how do you say it makes you violent? Or kill you? You know, it's kind of like... <laughs> Yeah, right. Uh, what am I missing in this picture? You know, so people can lack a certain amount of self-insight in, in certain situations. I think. But the thing that struck me is, my colleague was saying, longitudinally, it's not personality that makes the difference. It's not as if more aggro people get drawn to video games because, in the longer term, once you've played video games for ages and ages and ages, you end up being pretty desensitized to violence and you know because just from sheer exposure but I sort of thought about it and I didn't say this at the time so I have to have another chat to him tomorrow but what about the people that would never even continue to play a video game like me I had one go at a first person shooter once right and there was nowhere to hide and there was nothing else you could do in the game except kill people so I thought this is just not for me do you know so I wouldn't be in the longitudinal research. Do you know, there'd be people like me that would just go, I'm out of there, I'm gone, this is not my scene. So I'm interested, in, there are certain sort of self-selection effects, the contexts you expose yourself to, 
But I'm also very interested in the context you would never expose yourselves to, you would never dream of doing. That's just as revealing about personality. Remember last week I said, who would go bungee jumping? Some of you put up your hands. Who wouldn't? Some of you put up your hands. Who didn't put their hands up? A third of the class put up their hands. They're not the kind of people to put their hands up. Do you know? That's a personality thing too, and it's really interesting. That kind of that hesitancy to be involved, to sort of put your personality out there. But personality, you can you can pick it in terms of persistent patterns of trying. That there are some things that you just keep trying to do, and that persistent patterns of avoiding as well. What's also, I think, very interesting about personality is that each of us, perhaps, is defined by the conflicts that we experience. Like, you notice that Kim was talking about the conflict over emotional expression being linked to eating disorders, and that's something that hasn't been apparent until quite recently, because it never comes out as behavior. It's just a conflict. You don't actually do anything. You just don't do anything because you're so conflicted. So there's you know, nothing observable happening unless you speak to the person. So conflicts are important as well. Also, I think there are some people for whom there are powerful, significant life events that define them, like getting a silver medal or a gold medal or something like that, or not getting the gold medal. These, these things that are truly defining of you. Now, I found this really lovely article online by Chris Waterloo as part of this SAGE qualitative research methods text, which I have, but I couldn't cut and paste it from my text, and I could cut and paste it from online, so that's where this comes from. And he says, it's an approach or style within social research that focuses on specific elements, like individuals or events or entities or situations, documents, works of culture and art. So notice what the data is there. It's not just self-report, it's like works of culture and art, events, situations, documents. It's really exploding the possibility in terms of data. And it's looking at what's particular to these. And that really contrasts with what is sometimes portrayed as almost the only game in town within psychology, which is research that highlights regularities, law-like regularities, repeatable elements of form and behavior that are part of larger processes or patterns. And if you're really going for science, you want general laws and theories. The funny thing is, though, about general laws and theories, is that they don't necessarily enable you to predict what this person is going to do next. Is this, like, is this person likely to offend again? Well, they're very low on agreeableness. Yes, but are they going to offend again if I let them out? You know, Or if I write a report that lets them out? You know, prediction is a really difficult science. And sometimes ideographic is actually much more useful in that than nomothetic. So quite different impulses animate these research traditions. The ideographic is not so much trying to reduce things down to a small array of descriptors or, descriptors or broad dimensions like introversion or extroversion, but it's trying to get more subtle. What is it that makes this person really fly off the handle? What makes this person likely to donate money to my cause? Okay, These are sometimes the things that you really want to know, to get at the uniqueness of people. And most importantly, for those of you who perhaps don't aim to go on to become researchers and academics, who actually want to get out in the world and make a, a difference, the ideographic is quite relevant to writing court reports, case studies. You're going to have to describe clients that you've seen for an hour. You're going to have to suddenly sum up their behavior. You're going to be asked to predict behavior in these situations. You're going to perhaps 
be in the position of predicting how likely they are to be recidivist, to commit a crime again, or to be kind in a particular situation. So what fascinates me about the ideographic is it tells you about what goes on within a personality. Okay, what goes on within a personality? How a personality is structured, but that's too static. It's more like, what makes this person do what? Do you know? Like, if I threaten them, do they get egotistical? If I threaten them, do they thump me? You know, if I threaten them, do they walk out of the room and go to someone who's nicer? You know? Okay, so in other words, what, what am I likely to produce dynamically in the moment? In, in response to certain provocations. So that's kind of like what certain contexts or um, prompts provide to a personality. They, they're called the if-then contingencies. And Walter Mischel suggests that they're the crucial elements of personality, the if-then contingencies. And I, I certainly think there's a lot going there. Now have a look back at what you said was unique about your personality or what you said was unique about your friend's personality. Is it an if-then contingency? Last year, nobody had an if-then contingency, so don't feel you have to put your hand up. Has anybody put it, you know, if somebody brasses me off, then I go and drink champagne, or something like that. No contingency. Okay, no worries, shame. Normally, what's unique about you are those particular situations that, you know, move you in certain ways or make you do certain things. Okay, so what I'm interested in exploring today is the structures that arise from places other than statistics within psychology. So ways of structuring personalities that doesn't necessarily just rely on stats. Let me see what I want to sort of illustrate that now with an example. The personality styles that I'm very interested in, psychopaths, Machiavellians, narcissists, they're all low on trust. They all have somewhat shallow affect. They all lack empathy, right? So what can provide structure to those three traits, if you like, those three attributes? Well, they correlate. They do. They all intercorrelate. I could explore whether or not trust was inherited or due to life experiences. I could explore whether shallow affect had unusual neuropsychological underpinnings, then I would be right, because shallow affect of a sort is linked to deficiencies in the right amygdala. Recently, it looks like the insula is implicated in that as well. Okay, that's telling me something. That's letting me drill down, you know, into a story about trust or drill down into a story about shallow affect. But it's not really telling me why they go together. Do you know what I mean? Or why they go together in these particular kinds of personalities. So it's giving me some sort of structure, but it's a drilled down structure rather than an interconnective, predictive kind of structure. It's like, okay, if I put them in an fMRI and they're a psychopath, their right amygdala is going to have a diminished blood flow and there's not going to be a hot spot there when I'm showing them fearful faces. Great. <laughs> Do you know? That's interesting. I'm not dismissing that, but it doesn't help me if I want to predict what that person's likely to do or if I want to work out how I could possibly remedy those difficulties. So, there's another kind of structure that one can provide, and that's 
a theory, basically. And stats can't give you that. You have to work that out for yourself, critically, from your reading. Now, where I'm at at the moment, and it's very interim, so I wouldn't really call it a theory. I'd call it a model, <laughs> because um, it's not very abstract at this stage. It's just modeling fairly concrete findings. But what I seem to sort of find is that this low trust and shallow affect is something that seems to arise reliably from abusive early experiences or neglectful early experiences or a lack of attunement and attachment. If you're low in trust, that seems to move you along a path to actually being quite hostile towards others. And hostility is kind of different from anger. Anger flashes and goes away. Hostility, once you've got it, it's a really cool kind of set of lenses through which you view the world in a way. And it means that you think people who suffer deserve it, that they've brought it on themselves. What do they expect? You know, it's not a very compassionate way of viewing the world. And if everyone I experience, sorry, I'll ask in a minute, if everyone I experience is in relation to me and I'm hostile, I'm going to produce things in them. Yes. Unfortunately, that's true. They also believe that they deserve their own suffering. Thank you. That's very much true. Ex oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. There's a, a form of suffering that they don't think that they deserve, which I'm just going to come to in the second point, so I'll, I'll come back to that. That's lovely. But it also seems to be the case that certain forms of abuse mean it's not safe for you to show your feelings. Okay? Because normally, if you depend on other people and you trust them, you show your feelings, you let them know what's going on for you. But if instead of feeling that someone's going to soothe you or take care of you, you feel that they might abuse you for being weak enough to be distressed, or they might tease you or josh you or label you for being distressed, it's like, no way am I going to let them know that I'm distressed. And so you become able to control your emotional displays. Now, that makes you a good manipulator, okay? Because you're not out there with your emotional displays. But unfortunately, if you don't let yourself have your emotions, experience and express them, you have shallow affect. And if you can't feel emotions for yourself, you lack the first building block towards being able to understand what it would be like for another person to feel those emotions, because you don't even let yourself quite feel them. So you can sort of see how there's a kind of domino effect here, that it's almost like there's some kind of causal implication, just starting from not having had great interactions with the parents early on, or you know, having had early life experiences. Now, it could well be that you're born with a deficient right amygdala, but it may also be that that is accentuated or even caused by the sorts of experiences that you've had to cope with in your early life. So what, what that means is that if you either end up there hostile to others or without empathy, you're in a position, you're motivated to exploit others, you're able to exploit others because you're pretty cool in your affective displays. That might cause some shame. You might realize, gosh, I'm using people. Not everybody in my society does that. So I'm standing apart. I'm different in some way. I'm an exploiter. And that might cause you shame. Now, that's a painful piece of suffering. It's a very toxic emotion, shame. We often don't want to have it for very long at all. So what happens very regularly is that people find a way of externalizing shame or bypassing it by saying, well, they deserved it. They were asking for it. What a fool, you know. Um, and that's what I call a worldview generator. 
when you ascribe or attribute blame for your poor treatment of others to those others, you start to have a, a view of humanity in things. People are mean and deserve to be exploited. If I don't exploit them, they'll exploit me. That's the first step towards a Machiavellian worldview. So what I'm trying to say is that I, I can either say these things are highly correlated, end of story, or I can say, why are these things correlated? Why do they go together? Is it a developmental sequence? Is there one thing that's got the big causal effect and all of these th things follow from it? That's starting to model, theoretically, what's going on here. Now, I don't really know how to model it and draw it yet, but this is these are the variables that I've sort of got on the screen in terms of the theory of personality that I'm going to be covering in the course. You can also do what's called conceptual analysis. I read my research on empathy. I go back to the earliest stuff that I've managed to look at, which is around 1970. I'm not really a great historian, you can tell. Um, and I see that empathy says it's the capacity to feel for others. Okay, I can break that apart conceptually. It requires the capacity to feel. So if I've got shallow affect, I'm diminished even there. It requires vicarious feeling. I need to be able to feel for another. So I need to um, be able to sense that the other is different from me, but be able to work out what they're feeling from observing them and resonating along with what I observe. That's vicarious feeling, right? But I need to know that that other person is a separate other in their own right, equally worthy of not suffering as, as any, as me. But these are precisely the things that don't seem to be in place for narcissists, psychopaths, Machiavellians, but they're differently not in place. The narcissistically inclined person doesn't have a real sense of self and other as separate. The psychopathically inclined person doesn't really have the full capacity to feel. You see how you start to get a nuanced profiling that might lead you to a, a different developmental story for those strongly linked personality styles. So that's me just trying to sort of model for you the way that, that I try to think through these sorts of questions, both theoretically and a at a research level. Now, just to be a bit rude, because I am unfortunately a bit rude, in many tray psychologies, the only structure that's provided is by statistics. You can ask people, so what's the link between you know psychopathy, Machiavellianism, and narcissism? Oh, they're really intercorrelated. And say, thanks. <laughs> okay, I was hoping for more, but you know, and uh, or they might sort of tell you, well, you know, there's a hereditary component to it. Yep, that's interesting. That's good, but it doesn't tell you exactly why a person came to be high or low on a particular attribute. You know, like if I can map how agreeable you are, um, that's great, but it doesn't tell me what got you there. And if I want to make you more agreeable or less agreeable, it doesn't tell me how to do that. Okay, so remediation isn't a possibility if I wanted to or if you wanted to. Also, most importantly, I think, and you know it, if you get your friends to get involved in your research in psychology, they'll go, great, will you profile me? No, God no, we're just going to you know, number crunch you and you're just going to be a faceless part of a big group. Yeah, but what will it tell me about my personality? Mm, you know, everybody wants the profile, they want the unique profile and you very rarely do that. And we don't quite know how to read it. We don't know what it means. 
Well, see, even if we could say you're two standard deviations above on conscientiousness, but you're really low on agreeableness, what does that mean? It's a good question to ask. But the nomothetic method has its place. I'm bashing it a little bit today. I rely on it a lot in my own research, so don't think I just bash it. I'm just being critical, discerning in my use of it. It's usually the case that trays are assessed just so that we can compare an individual score to a group mean. And to assess trays in that manner, we usually get people just to tick boxes, as you know. And as I said last week, people answer in terms of their frame of reference, and that's just the way it is. And the big, what I call, broadband measures of personality, what's usually happened is that somebody's just gleaned through the dictionary, grabbed all the descriptive terms about personality they could get, put them through a computer, do some factor analyses, chuck out the ones that don't load highly on the factors, have a look at the, the ones that do load highly on the factors, and statistics provides the structure. And as I told you last week, Likert scales impose dimensionality, being high or low, and factor analysis imposes hierarchy. So you've got this overarching agreeableness sort of descriptor of a factor, and there are little facets that go towards making up agreeableness, and that's a hierarchy. And it simplifies your data, and it's quite useful. But you're inevitably going to get a hierarchical structure rather than any other kind of structure, because that's what your method has imposed on your data. And so I think it's quite important for us to recognize the difference between discovered structure and imposed structure. And, it, and you've got to make sure that you know when you're imposing quite a lot on your data. Because you, it's like putting your data in a straitjacket and it can't speak, you know, or it can't move as freely as it would because you've looked at it through Likert scales and through factor analysis. And there's certain things that your data can't tell you. If I impose orthogonality, in my factor analysis, if I assume that the factors are uncorrelated, if they're actually highly correlated, the data can't speak to me, it can't tell me. I've got to allow them to be correlated before I can see that they are. So I have to think of that and explore that possibility. Then there's the whole issue of defining trays. You know, sure trays are behaviors, that's the end product, but we hardly ever observe people, we get them to report, okay? And so that's actually quite different from a behavior. That's just what people think about themselves. And also, a, a tray is not necessarily a behavior that's going to show itself regardless of situation. It's a disposition to behave. You know, like, you might be quite wild and humorous, but you're probably slightly constrained being in the lecture, right? You can't quite show that side of your personality here. So in other words, it's a disposition to behave that expresses itself consistently, but it's usually averaged across an array of situations. And so what you've got to take seriously is that no tray will manifest itself regardless of situation. It's just a disposition to respond. You need to make possible the context that will reveal that personality trait. Now, one of the difficult things is that even with something like the five-factor model, which many people regard as quite a good measure of personality, its predictive power isn't actually all that amazing. It, it predicts or it predicts about 0.2 to 0.22 between conscientiousness and job performance. There's dispute as to whether or not agreeableness or conscientiousness predicts job performance, for in instance. And there's the, the probability there that it's actually quite easy to fake good. If, if I gave you the five-factor model 
and said to you, I'm going to use your results to decide whether or not I give you a research assistant's job or not, and I'm looking for someone who's really agreeable and conscientious, you guys would have no problem at all peaking on those factors. You would come out, you know, in the top sort of, you know, percentile, the one percentile or something, 99 percentile. Okay, so it's very easy to fake good because the face validity is right there. You know what the items are assessing. It doesn't have a lie scale and it doesn't necessarily use the frame of reference issue which I mentioned last week and which I'm just reproducing there so that you can remind yourself what I mean by frame of reference. Like, What do you have in mind when you answer those questions? Okay, one of the things that people have really tried to do because they've tried to show that these trays are real and the way that you show that they're real is you show that they're genetic and so you prove that some of them have got high heritability and I do actually think that the heritability for extroversion and neuroticism is looking pretty good and there's about 45-50% of the variance that looks like it comes from your genes. The thing is though, extroversion and neuroticism are very temperament-like traits. Okay, so um, they're the sorts of things that would predict whether you, you know, leapt into the air when a car backfired beside you, or if there's feedback when you're listening to a band, do you sort of absolutely plug your ears, okay? How much stimulation can you cope with? That's the kind of way that they track things. But you need much more, I think, to really explain personality than just factor analysis and an appeal to DNA. Um, Many of the people that I admire, like Archie Tulligan, have done heaps of twin studies over the years. Um, I think's really cool. He does. He actually looks for what underpins extroversion and neuroticism. He initially thought it was the ascending reticular activating system, the ARIS, but uncertain about that. Then thought, oh, it's the limbic system. Uncertain about that. Certainly the cortex is involved in certain of the personality um, attributes for inhibition, but there's no real conclusive findings as to those sorts of underpinnings or profiles. I suppose for me, I accept that certain trays are tracking things that are real. I don't doubt that they're real. I just don't think that they're the full story. And I don't think everything about personality is tray-like. I think there are other kinds of things that we can be interested in as personality psychologists. And one of the reasons I don't think they're the full story is that they describe, but they don't explain. If I want to explain how you got high on agreeableness or high on neuroticism, I need to sort of look outside of just those descriptive terms. I need to look elsewhere. And the problem is that Trays tend to be assessed using questionnaires and there's a lot of assumptions about using self-report questionnaires. It assumes that self-report's a valid way of assessing what you're likely to do in a given situation. And there's a very beautiful piece of research back in 1934 called by Lapierre and it looked at prejudice against Chinese people in America at that time. And what the research was exploring was it sent a, a questionnaire around to a whole stash of motels in America saying, would you allow a Chinese couple to come and stay the night? And I can't remember the exact um, facts, but uh, quite a large proportion of the motels wrote back and said, no, they wouldn't. What was fascinating, I can put this article online if you're interested, what was fascinating was that Chinese couple had already gone to those motels. And an overwhelming number of those motels had welcomed them when they were faced with the people. 
So it's a nice example of where you're actually nicer than you think. Do you know? Um, you know that your prejudice, if it's no cost to you, can be quite high. But when you're faced with the reality of another person, you're not quite as prejudiced. Okay. So there's there's lots of discrepancy between what you say and what you do. They correlate about 0.3 in life, which is not great. Okay. Um, I don't think that the structure provided by stats is the only kind of structure that we need to know about. And I think that there's quite a lot more to personality than what you can get a person to report on where they just have to tick boxes like strongly agree or strongly disagree. And yet, if I assume that there's nothing more to personality than traits, I have to assume that self-report's valid, stats is the best structure, and nothing else is important about personality over and above what you can report on when I ask you directly. And I don't think any of those are true. Okay. And one of the things that's most obvious is motives. I think motives are really different from traits. And Costa and McRae were hell-bent on saying that they were the same thing, but I actually think that they're fundamentally different notions. But I just think it's so fascinating that Murray, who's um, he's quite a cool researcher, you have a look at his work, he really didn't want to get involved in the trade point of view because he said it's too behaviorist, um, it's neglecting things that never get into behavior, it's neglecting the fact that things can combine and oppose and conflict. So all the interesting juicy stuff for him wasn't assessed by traits and by behavior. As I've said, traits are descriptive, but they often don't tell you the dynamics. And um, McAdams, Dan McAdams, quite a famous psychologist these days, he calls it the psychology of the stranger. It's the kind of information you'd like to know if you knew nothing else about a person. But it doesn't really convey the if-then contingency of a personality, which is what you want to know. If I go to Antarctica with this person and there's a full moon, are they going to be howling? Those are the crucial things you need to know. Okay, and that's because traits don't give you a developmental story. They don't tell you why or how a person ends up acting in a particular way. And it's just far too simple to assume that traits have a constant influence on behavior. They actually have to be activated. Even the most flagrant narcissist is not going to be narcissistic in every situation. Sometimes you're not going to pick that this person is narcissistically inclined. And this is what's called interactionism. And most psychology assumes this theoretically, but doesn't actually measure things in this way when they're actually doing their research. You have to sort of work out what kinds of input from the environment is a, a particular personality sensitive to. Okay, so if I say I'm um, envy prone, one of the things that I'm going to be particularly sensitive to is people who drive nicer cars than me have longer holidays than me, get to go overseas and not me, you know? Okay, in other words, I'm not going to be maxing out on envy all my life. But if I'm envy prone, that's my disposition, I'm going to really pay attention to things that are envy inspiring. And I'm going to probably be up around the upper levels of envy compared to most people because I kind of self-impose that on myself. Same if I'm shame prone. Same if I'm in states of high positive affect, the world's going to be a fairly rosy kind of place, or if I'm a high anxious person. So in other words, I hope what you're seeing is that if I've got a disposition towards anxiety or anger or joy, I'm actually going to filter the world according to those dispositions, which is going to move me around within the possible space of how anxious I'm capable of being as a person. 
do you sort of get that? It's like a sliding scale. I accidentally take myself to the max of my envy if I'm focusing on my neighbor's cars all the time. Why have they got a BMW and not me? Or something like that. Okay. Now, there's two ways that you can think about adaption. One is your life, the one wild life that you've got to live, right? What is it that's going to make you able to have the best life that you can have? One of them is going to be <clears throat> if you can negotiate the tasks that life throws at you without getting put into a negative affective state that you can't get out of. That's what neuroticism is, when you can't terminate negative affective states. One is if you can minimize your emotional instability. Okay. The other is if you can minimize your predisposition to experience anxiety. Now, some of these things are flexible and some of these are more difficult to shift around. But these are central to any description of personality because they're going to influence how distressed you are, how much inner discomfort you've got about who you are, how much fluctuation you've got in your mood or your emotion, and whether or not you can self-soothe. What does it take to self-soothe for you? Does watching a video do it, or does it take, you know, champers? Okay, so those are the things to think of. But then there's another face of adaption, um, and that is biologically defined adaption is the effectiveness with which reproductive problems are solved. In other words, do you get to pass on your genes? That's the definition of adaption, in a sense. Um, not do you survive. Uh-uh. <laughs> Evolution doesn't care about that. Just do you get to pass on your genes? And it's a very biologically anchored meaning of adjustment and a highly partial one because I've got very many highly adaptive friends that will never pass on their genes for various reasons. One of the things that fascinates me, probably because I'm not very capable of it myself, is just how important inhibition is in life. And <clears throat> it's one of the most powerful predictors of success in a capitalist world is being able to forego pleasure now for larger, greater pleasure later. And Walter Mischel <clears throat> tested four-year-olds to see whether or not they could wait 15 minutes before eating some marshmallows that he left in front of them on a plate. And what was fantastic about it, it there are really great videos of this if you go to YouTube, is that um, he didn't ask them, you know, how likely are you to forego eating these marshmallows for 15 minutes to get this great big block of chocolate if you manage not to eat the marshmallows for an entire 15 minutes? He just observed. And what he noticed were huge individual differences. I like the little guy on the bottom right. It was like, just hand them over. I'll just eat them now. It's just too miserable to sit looking at them, you know. Um, but you can sort of see all the level of angst of the other little ones. And what in one of the variants of that piece of research, he had what's called the thinking aloud paradigm. In other words, the things that the conflicts that you're experiencing or the strategies or the coping mechanisms that never make their way into behavior. But apparently they were what the little kids that were managing to inhibit were using. And so he had this little computer that came out and like, ah, hi, I'm Ernie the computer. And I want to know what you're thinking about as you're looking at those marshmallows. And one little girl, I think it was, they're not really marshmallows. They're cotton wool. They taste disgusting. You know, <laughs> like she's totally reframing them so that she manages not to eat them. I thought that was a quite fantastic strategy and I might borrow it at some stage. That was Lecture 21 from the series Philosophy of Psychoanalysis, presented by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. The theme song to the show was created by Rose Mackenzie Peterson. 
The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Speak soon. Mm-hmm.